Julie and I, Julie's here with me, and we bring greetings from Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, where we're experiencing the kindness and goodness of God. Uh, we've been there for a year and a half now, and uh, it's just great uh, having the opportunity again to serve as an elder in a church. I really hadn't been doing that for a number of years, and to do it with C.J. Mahaney and Gary Ricucci and Jeff Perswell and Brian Chesmore is really a delight. Um, and just personal updates, we're about to welcome our 14th grandchild into the world, Lord willing. And uh, we are just marveling at God's faithfulness to his people. We have 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord. And you're one of them. Uh, we are so grateful for this church. We're grateful for you being here this morning, whether you are part of planning this church or you're just here as a guest. Uh, very grateful you're here. Very grateful for Larry and men. And yeah, it's been almost 30 years it's getting old. It's really, I mean, for you. I mean, it's always a delight. But um, All right. Years ago, uh, I attended a retreat as a small group leader. I think it was a small group leader. It was a small group leader's retreat. And uh, during one of the meetings, I found myself overwhelmed with, with a sense of God's love for me. We were singing a particular song, and I, I just, really, I felt like, Ah, this is amazing. And just, it was this, one of those experiences you remember for the rest of your life. And for a few moments, I was just undone. I was oblivious to everyone around me. I just thought, man, this, this must be what heaven's like. You know, tears flowed down my cheeks. And I wasn't sure what was going on. I just knew I wanted more of this, whatever this was. Thinking, you know, this is what I was made for. A life of worship. That's the title of the message, a life of worship. I thought, this is, this is a life of worship. So, so I thought, man, I'm going to live a life of worship. So for the next few days, you know, I, I went to bed singing. I woke up singing. It was around the time that our son Jordan had just been born. And sometimes he'd get up in the middle of the night and Julie would feed him, but he'd still be awake. And so I'd just I'd carry him around. And I'd be singing in the middle of the night. And it was like, uh, this is so easy. This is living this life of worship. This is so great. I'm a 24-7 worshiper. But worshiping God as a way of life wasn't always like the easiest thing because, well, for instance, sometimes I'd be in a shopping mall and they'd be playing some song from the 60s and, and I'd be trying to sing, you know, bless the Lord, oh my soul, bless the... And they'd be, you know, some Beatles song or something. And this, how do they expect me to worship God with this music coming over the speakers? How can I be a full-time worshiper? I didn't know. It was hard. And it wasn't long before I realized that either, either God didn't expect me to worship Him all the time or my understanding of worship was wrong. And I figured out it was the second. I came to that conclusion after much study and prayer. And I don't think I'm alone in that. You know, when, when we hear the phrase, a life of worship, most of us think we just need to be, you know, listening to more Matt Redman and Chris Tomlin. Like that, that's a life of worship. I, I, or to make sure we sing at every small group meeting or, or we're singing all the time. Some of us might think that we need to pursue a musically inspired state of intimacy with God that is transcendent over all other moments. And those are wonderful things. But I don't think that's what God means by a life of worship. Because really, if you pursue that, you'll just become useless. I mean, no one will know what to do with you. you what, do they, what do they say? So heavenly minded, you know earthly good. I don't think that can be happened. But in that sense, you can be with a... With a with the misunderstanding of what worship is, you can become useless for the Lord's purposes. 
So we don't want that to happen. So I thought it'd be good, before we get into the passage, just to talk a little bit about the word worship, what, what that is, what it means. There are two words, one in Hebrew, one in Greek, that are most often translated worship in the Bible. And they refer to the physical gesture of bowing down or or bowing to the ground, bending over or bowing down before a superior, someone who's exalted above you, someone who's higher than you. And it expresses attitudes of humility, submission, reverence. Those are, the, those are the kinds of things associated with the word that we translate worship in the Old and New Testaments. Now there's, an, uh, there's another set of words that has to do with serving. It's just serving. And we sometimes translate that worship. You shall serve the Lord your God only. We sometimes translate that. We shall worship the Lord your God only. And it's particularly had to do with what the priests did in the temple. They served the Lord in the temple. They worshiped the Lord with preparing the sacrifices, offering the sacrifices. And then there's a third set of words that has to do with fearing God. Yare is the Hebrew word. It's, it's holding him in awe. So you've got these words that have to do with submission and humility and reverence. These words that have to do with serving. And these, these words that have to do with fear and awe. And none of them are immediately or necessarily connected with music. Which is pretty weird considering that today for many Christians when you say worship we think music. We think singing. Now it, it's true that when we read the Psalms there's a strong musical connection. You'd have you know, to the tune of the dove for the choir master and, and those kinds of things. But we don't see those words for worship in the Psalms very often, if at all. So there's an, another thing going on. So worship from God's perspective means submission, reverence, service, and awe. And when he wants to sum up the relationship that we're to have with him, this is what he says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So he reduces what he wants in our relationship to this one word, love, which is lived out in submission and humility and reverence and serving and even fear. Because what we love supremely is what we worship. If you want to know what you you worship, it's what you love. When When I love something, when I worship something, I put it above myself. I exalt it to the extent that I think about it a lot. I I pursue it. I go after it. It starts to govern the way I live my life. You see it in, in, uh, you know, when someone has a new interest, a new hobby uh, that is excessive. You know, whether it be a a new band or or a sports team. It's just, it's all they talk about. You spend five minutes with them, they will be talking about that. Why? Because they love it. It, it consumes them. It governs what they do. They, they, they spend time thinking about it and they only want to spend more time thinking about it. That's worship. That's what God wants. He wants our worship. 
Harold Best is a, used to be a, the dean of music at Wheaton College. He's now retired. Wrote, wrote a book called Music, uh, Unceasing Worship. And he says this, At this very moment, and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. Everyone worships. Everyone, everywhere, at every moment, is worshiping something. So, although we can say, I want to live a life of worship, you're already living a life of worship. Everybody is living a life of worship. Materialists worship their stuff. The things they own. The things they can accumulate. Rationalists worship their minds. They put it above everything else. It's, it's what they think about. They think about thinking about thinking about things. Hedonists worship their pleasure. That's the ultimate goal. Doesn't matter what it is, where they get it, they just want pleasure. Hardcore environmentalists worship nature. They don't call it creation, it's nature. Because creation implies a creator. They don't worship the creator, they worship the creation. But they don't call it the creation because they don't want to acknowledge the creator. So they worship nature. Even atheists worship. Now they'll deny it, but they worship themselves. They say, no, I'm the ultimate authority. I'm the one who calls the shots. I'm the one who determines what real, reali real reality is. Everybody lives a life of worship. So the question isn't, do I live a life of worship? The answer is yes. The question is, where is my worship directed? Because worship doesn't begin, it's pointed. It doesn't start, it's aimed. So at the beginning of the meeting, when we have a call to worship, Harold Best said, there's really only one call to worship. That's when someone becomes a Christian and they're turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Everything else is a call to a continuation of worship. That's true, I like that. It's not started, it's aimed. It's with that backdrop, I want to look at the passage that we're going to look at today, Romans 12, just two verses. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, tell us what kind of worship God is looking for. And here we see that a life of worship involves four specific things. Let me read the passage. This is the word of God to us, is an errant, inspired, sufficient word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, Father, we ask you to open our ears and open our hearts and open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Pray that you would expose wrong thinking and you would give us a glimpse, more than a glimpse, a full view of why you are the only one worthy of 
worship, worthy of worship. Father, Son, and Spirit. Help me as I speak to speak clearly and courageously and compellingly that we might see more of Jesus Christ, your glory reflected in your word. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Worship of God, the kind of worship God desires, involves at least four things. And we see them right here in these two verses. The first is there is a specific source of the worship. There's a place from which it originates. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The NIV says, in view of God's mercy. Which I like. I think it's a better translation, but it, it communicates what Paul's trying to say. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's not just talking about one mercy. He's not saying, you know, God's shown you a mercy and we should respond. It's the mercies of God, which was a common way of speaking about God's mercy. It was mercies. It's a word that lets us know God's mercy can't be described or defined in just one way. There are 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord. It's not as though God has a limited supply of mercy. You know, we come to him one day, say, Lord, I need your mercy. Oh, I'm so sorry. I just ran out. I just gave to that last guy. I just don't have any more. I'm so sorry. He never does that. His mercies are new every morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never comes to an end. Every time we reach a destination safely, every time a child is born healthy, every time we take a breath, we are experiencing God's mercy. Now the reality is, there are mercies revealed even when we don't reach our destination safely. Even when a child isn't born healthy. Even when we can't take our breath any longer. Mercies. Mercies. But there's one mercy that stands above them all. And from which all other mercies flow. And Paul has just spent the first 11 chapters of Romans expositing that. He's, he's telling us what that mercy is. He's been expositing, extolling, explaining, and exalting. Exalting is just being so happy about something that you just want to burst. He's exalting in the mercy that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. So he starts out by, by reminding his readers that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've rebelled against our maker, our creator, and every one of us has worshipped the creature rather than the creator and we're worthy of eternal punishment. It says every mouth will be stopped before God. No one will have a defense. There will be no defense to offer. Every mouth will be stopped. Because we all deserve judgment. But in His great mercy, God has provided a Savior. Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, who satisfied divine justice fully, drank the cup of wrath dry, through His death in our place, and has now brought 
peace with God to everyone who trusts in him. Peace with the God who beforehand was their judge now becomes their father. He says, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That's how God chose his love. He didn't wait for you to change. He didn't wait for you to do something. He didn't wait for you to be better, make more promises. While you were still sinner, Christ died for you. That's how God the Father shows his love. And he says, now this is what that means. We, we've been freed from the power of sin. Romans 6, we're, we're freed from the condemnation of the law. And now nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. End of Romans 8. So Paul's just going off on this. He says, this is amazing. And then Romans 9 through 11, he's talking about how God is sovereignly and surely redeeming a people for himself, the true Israel, who will be to the whole world a demonstration of the mercy that he has shown. For he says, salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Jews and Gentiles alike were both under judgment and they've been shown mercy. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That's how he ends Romans 11. And then he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. It's not out of the blue that he's making this appeal. And when he says appeal, it's a strong statement. It's like, come on, you've got to see this. I appeal to you. Every other religion in the world involves earning the favor of the God you worship. You have to do something to gain the favor of the God you worship, if it's a personal God. Not Christianity. Not the true God. Mercy describes God's attitude towards us, especially as it speaks to our helplessness and our misery. We were lost. We were hopeless. We were enemies of God. We deserve judgment. He gave us mercy. We deserve condemnation. He gave us mercy. We deserve to be damned to hell. He gave us forgiveness. That's mercy. If we don't start with the mercies of God, we cannot live a life of worship. We cannot live a life of worship that honors God. We cannot worship God at all. If we don't start with his mercies. If we don't start with the mercies of God, worship becomes a means of earning God's favor. We become like the, the Pharisee in Luke 18. Remember the Pharisee, the, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Jesus tells a story to those who trusted in their own righteousness. The Pharisee comes, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like adulterers, these unjust people, these tax collectors. Even that tax collector over there, I thank you. I, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of everything I get. Thank you, God, I like this. He's bringing his own merits, his own achievements to God. God says, you can't come to me that way. Because all, all the things you've done are polluted. They're tainted. They're stained with your own sin. You've got to come to me through mercy, which is great news for sinners. It's great news. If we don't start with the mercies of God, we'll miss the greatest reason we have to worship God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we sing so many songs about Jesus dying and rising from the dead. Because it's in view of that mercy that we can worship God. It's the view of that mercy that leads us, that compels us, that draws us to worship Him. So we come to God through His mercy or we don't come at all. It's the only way we've got. So a life of worship begins 
The source is the mercies of God. Second thing we see is the response of worship. There's a specific response. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that's where its source is, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the response is, we present our bodies as a sacrifice to God. That's the response. Paul intentionally says we are to present our bodies to God. In other words, we're no longer to come to God with something that's just outside ourselves. In the Old Testament, they would bring bulls, they'd bring rams or sheep or doves. We don't do that anymore. That's not, that's not the, the, the whole response. The whole response is our bodies. The whole response is everything about us. We don't drop in our, our money in the plate you know, put in extra this week and think we've worshipped God. That's like that's all God's asking. We don't, you know, come here for an hour or two a week and think, well, I've done it. I've worshipped God. He should be happy. I've given, I've, put, I've given him time. And so often we think that way. We wouldn't say it as crassly as that. But we think, well, God, I've given you time. I, I, I gave you 20 minutes this morning. What a, this is my time. I get these four hours... This is my time. That's not the response that God says His mercies bring about. His mercies, if we really see them, they bring about this response, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Now, his, Paul's use of the word bodies there is specifically addressing some of the teachers of his day who looked down on anything physical, they thought that worship was more of a, a mental, transcendent, spiritual activity and, and the body was bad. And Paul said, you know what? The body's not bad. And what we do with our bodies matters. And you, you still have that today. Uh, it's expressed in different ways. Some people say we need to be concerned about the poor and not say anything about what people do in their bedrooms. They, they, they put that dichotomy there before us and say, God's really concerned about this, or God's really concerned about fighting injustice, but he's, but he's not concerned about pornography. Well, actually, he's concerned about both. Right. It's, it's whatever we do with our bodies right. that God calls us to present to him. Amen. So if we can't present something to him as an act of worship, we shouldn't do it. It's our bodies. We're to present our bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God. Now here's what's so amazing about this passage that we might not catch. Paul is using language that the Jews had used for centuries, centuries to talk about the temple. So the use of the word sacrifice is something that his readers would have thought applied to the temple. You bring your sacrifices. Now he's saying, no, I want your body to be a sacrifice. And they're going, whoa, whoa, hold on here. He says, no, uh, I want you to think of yourself as what is being offered. And you're a holy sacrifice, which refers to the kind of animals that were brought to the temple, unblemished animals. It's to be an acceptable sacrifice, which was the term used to describe the aroma of the incense offering. It was to be an acceptable aroma to God. Even the word worship at the end of verse 1, this is your spiritual worship, 
is a Greek word that was most commonly used to describe the priest's service at the temple. So, so in other words, Paul's taking Old Testament terminology and he's applying it to all of life. He's saying what you used to think just applied for this, like these moments at the temple, that's your whole life now. Excellent. Everything. It's everything you do. Now, even in the Old Testament, God didn't intend that it, people confine worship to one place, one, one time, one, one moment, even at the temple. Worship that pleased God couldn't be restricted to certain times and forms and rituals. Those were meant to encourage and express a life of worship in God in all respects. That was the purpose of the Mosaic Law. It was to detail what that life looked like. You know, God didn't just say, do these actions when you come to the tabernacle or the temple and I'm going to be happy. Eh, he wasn't saying that. He was saying what you do together should encourage and flow out of what you do in your daily life, which is love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we get to the New Testament, there's an even stronger move away from identifying meetings and rituals as the totality of our worship. Jesus has made it possible because of his once and for all sacrifice for us in our place. He has made it possible for our entire lives to be offered as a living sacrifice to God in spirit and truth. That's what he said to the woman uh, in John 4, which passage we read at the beginning of the meeting. The Father seeking worshipers not acts of worship, not feelings of worship. He's seeking worshipers. And that's what Jesus has come to make us. It's pretty exciting. Through his once and for all offering, we can now be offered up as a sacrifice of praise to God. Again, Harold Best quoted him three times, I think, this morning. Uh, Harold Best has said, All our offerings are at once both humbled and exalted through the strong saving work of Christ. Everything we offer God is humbled and exalted. It's humbled because it would be rejected apart from Christ. It's exalted because when we offer it through Jesus, it's, offered, it's received as though Jesus offered it himself. Again, very exciting stuff. So, when Paul uses words for worship, he does this in other parts of his letters. He says evangelism is worship. So you can say, I'm going out to worship. Like this afternoon, after lunch, we're going out to worship. Eating for the glory of God. Inviting people to the church for the glory of God. That's worship. He says, <laughs> Paul spoke of how he served God with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son. Romans 1.9. That's how he worshiped God with his whole heart. Preaching the gospel of his son. Serving others is worship. Worship doesn't start when we sing. Worship is going on as people are setting up chairs. Before anybody comes in as they're rolling these cases in and unpacking everything. They're worshiping God. I say, could be. And if they're grumbling while they're doing it, they're not. But if they're doing it with a joyful spirit, as what, as what I saw when I came in this morning, this is worshiping God. So he says in Hebrews 13, 16, the writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Giving someone 20 bucks to honor Christ is worship. Giving is worship. Paul referred to financial gifts as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's Philippians 4.18. So everything we do is meant to be an act of worship. It's not starting, it's going somewhere already. 
And the question is, is it going to God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, or is it going somewhere else? Because there are a gazillion other places it can go. And if we're not conscious that every moment we can be worshiping God through Jesus Christ, it most often will go somewhere else. So the life of worship we offer to God can't be confined to what we do in this room. I mean, I love what we do in this room. This is great. This is a joy. But it's not all that worship is. It's not simply presenting our songs and our prayers to God. It's not, it's not trying to enter some mystical state. It includes very ordinary, mundane things we do and say every day. Studying. Eating. We've already covered that. Probably plenty. Helping a friend out. Cleaning. Driving. Changing a diaper. You can do that as an act of worship. Sometimes it's more of an act of worship than others. Relating to our parents and children. Relating to our friends. Those we don't know. God wants to do those things. He wants us to do those things in response to the mercy we receive. And as a way of drawing attention to the God who has shown us mercy. There is no part of our lives, our minds, our intellect, our emotions, our wills, our souls that hasn't been affected by God's mercy and isn't meant to be a response to God's mercy. It all brings attention to him. It all draws attention to him. It all says, you know what? We, we've just received amazing mercy. A friend, uh, Ray Ortland Jr., says, uh, the saying in their churches, you know, I, I don't know if I get this exactly, says, I'm an idiot. I'm going to heaven. Anyone can get in on this. <laughs> That's the news we have to share. I'm an idiot. I'm going to heaven. Anyone can get in on this. That's, that's our lives. Uh, for the glory of God. He deserves the glory. It's not like he's trying to steal it. Everyone else tries to steal it. He deserves it. So we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. And this is our spiritual worship, Paul says. The word is logikos. It's obviously the word from which we get the word logic. And uh, some translations translate it reasonable. This is our reasonable or understanding worship. Yielding ourselves to God, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, is something that involves our minds. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a mystical state. It involves our minds. It's not mechanical or rote or automatic. That's why we want to do everything we can to avoid ritualism, doing things out of rote, or doing things just externally, because it's, it's meant to be from the inside that it comes out. God wants us to be engaged as we give him glory. And that word reasonable also s- speaks to this, our worship makes sense. It makes sense because the Son of God has come to show us extraordinary mercy. And failing to respond to him in in praise and and offering our lives to him, offering our bodies to him, it's foolish. It's unreasonable. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. And the, well, we'll get to that in a second, what the world does. A small savior elicits worship that is small, partial, 
erratic, and half-hearted. That's what a small Savior does. A great Savior elicits great worship. It is comprehensive, life-consuming, constant, wholehearted. By the mercies of God, present your bodies. Third thing we see in this passage, we see in the source of our worship, the response to, to, of worship. I want to talk about the battle of worship. It'd be nice if all we did, you know, was just say, well, great, we'll leave this room and we'll just spend our entire time presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to God, holding acceptable to Him. That's our reasonable worship. That's so easy. It's not, though. Why? Well, Paul tells us, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. I think the J.B. Phillips translation says, do not let the world press you into its mold. Because that's what the world wants to do. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So it's a battle against the world for our minds. It's a battle against the world for our souls. The word world there really means age. This age. Do not be conformed to this age, this temporary, transient, fleeting age. Don't be conformed to it. Seems like the real deal. It's not. Don't be conformed to that. And the reason Paul tells us that is because this age is not ambivalent towards us seeking to bring glory to God with our lives. It wants to crush that. The world, this age, wants to make us like itself. Wants to tie us into, root us into what is transient and temporal and seen rather than what is solid and eternal and unseen. That's where God wants to root us. This age wants to root us in things that, I like that. Love it. The, the, the different references Scripture gives to describing man. Our lives are a fleeting breath. In Isaiah 40, all the nations of the world are accounted as nothing. Less than nothing. <laughs> what is less than nothing? That's really small. <laughs> the world tries to say, oh no, oh no, oh no. What you see around you, that's everything. And you're a fool if you think there's something more than this. That's what the world's trying to do. Advertising bombards us with the world's idea of what is meaningful and worth pursuing. Power, sexiness, beauty, flawlessness, athletic prowess, wealth, pleasure, independence, self-sufficiency, control. And the world fights to squeeze us into that mold and could form us to its thinking, telling us a million lies about God, about the world, about ourselves. Sometimes it's overt. Sometimes it's so overt it's just ridiculous. See some magazine ad or a movie comes out or you just think, that is so stupid. But that just makes us unaware of how many covert ways the world is seeking to press us into its mold. And it's a battle we face every day. And the way we overcome that battle, the way we win in that battle, it's by the grace of God, 
But the means he uses is the renewal of our minds. The renewal of our minds. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So how do, how do we present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice in the midst of a hostile world? We get our minds renewed. And it's a passive verb. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God does the changing. You go about the renewal of the mind. You do that stuff. There's another passage that uses the word transformation. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, 18. It sheds light on how we renew our minds. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So how does it happen? Well, we're beholding the glory of the Lord. We're recognizing that there's a glory that's greater than the glory of this earth. And we do that... Well, we, we, can do, we can do it as we sing songs. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. We can, we can do it as we look at creation. So we, we look at a sunset. We look at different, different things God has created. It's just so beautiful. That's the glory of the Lord. But the primary place we see the glory of the Lord is in His Word. Because right. that's where He's shown Himself to us. That's where He said, this is what I'm like. This is what I think. And sometimes they think, ah, it's so hard to understand. Like, do you think God's going to be easy to understand? I mean, do you think he would have a hard time, like, communicating to us what he's like? I mean, if I'm trying to communicate, I don't know, to a two-month-old, what life is like, it's going to be a little difficult. Well, that's just that's not even a good comparison to God and us. It's through His Word, as we study His Word, as we meditate on it, as we read it, as we reflect on what we've read, as we ingest truths into our souls, treasure them in our hearts. Our minds get renewed. About about 10 years ago, I I never read through the Bible. And I was a pastor. I'd been a pastor for like 16 years. I never read through the Bible. Just thought, that's terrible. And so we made a decision as a pastoral team to read through the Bible as a church. So I thought, well, I'm one of the pastors. I should probably read through the Bible. And I tell you, since then, I just have not been able to get enough of, of God's Word. It's, I, I mean, I, I you know, sometimes read large portions, sometimes read small portions, but whoa, it's, I just realized, every time we read it, I just realize, I just don't know God as well as I thought I did. I encourage you to do the same. I encourage you to meet God in His Word, to, to, to renew your mind so that you might be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We can be in the world, but not of the world. We're not against everything in our culture. It's okay to use iPhones. It's okay to use technology, go to movies, eat out. But if our aim is to look appealing and impressive and attractive to the world or to someone who doesn't know Christ, we're going to be living a life of worship. But it's not a life of worship that pleases God. It's not a life of worship of God. And we'll be in direct opposition to what God has saved us for. We should to bring glory to Him. So that's the battle. Finally, we want to look at the effect of our worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is such a great text. I mean, it speaks to so many of us. Because haven't you at some point in the last week, month, three months, year, said to God, I need to know what your will is. I'm clueless. I think I'm doing right things, but I really want to know what your will is. I'm just not getting it. Well, God's telling us, here's what you do. You look at my mercies. You present your bodies a living sacrifice. You renew your mind. And then by testing, there's got to be a testing. You discern what my will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The effect of living in light of God's mercies and presenting our bodies to Him and having our minds renewed is the ability to discern what really pleases God, what His will is. So only a renewed mind can understand why pursuing emotional or physical intimacy with an unbeliever is harmful. Only a renewed mind gets that. Only a renewed mind can appreciate that spending hours every day on Facebook or video games isn't what we were created for. Only renewed mind gets that. Only renewed mind can see that investing time and energy into our church and our family, the scriptures, missions, acts of mercy, is far superior to breathlessly running after the applause of the world. Only a renewed mind gets that. So if, if, if your struggles are great in these areas, it may be you need to take a step back maybe two steps back, maybe three steps back. Because this is a progression. An artist named Katie Hudson, a musician, recorded a Christian album in 2001 with these lyrics. For he'll prevail in the midst of all my trials and tribulations, and he'll prevail in the midst of all my sin and temptations. He'll prevail when I fall, and he will pick me up. For time and time again, my faith won't fail. Time and time again, my faith won't fail. 2001, Katie Hudson. Six years later, Katie Hudson exploded on the pop music scene with this song, I Kissed a Girl and I Liked It. Only she changed her name to Katy Perry who's now a platinum recording artist, the only artist besides Michael Jackson to have five number one singles from the same album. In an October interview, this past October, she said, I still believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But I also believe in extraterrestrials and that there are people who are sent from God to be messengers and all sorts of crazy stuff. She sighs. I look up into the sky and I'm just mind all those stars and planets the never endingness of the universe I just can't believe that we're the only polluting population every time I look up I know that I'm nothing and there's something way beyond me I don't think it's as simple as heaven and hell actually it is as simple as heaven and hell although there's a lot more to be said and I don't bring that up to critique Katy Perry pray for Katy Perry. I encourage you to pray for Katy Perry. 
It's massive influence. Most pop artists do. But it is simple. There's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We were created to know and worship Him in view of His mercies, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So what's to keep us and our children from going the way of Katy Perry and millions of others? It's to keep those things in view. It's to keep God's mercies in view, to never grow old with, to to never let them grow old. The Puritans had a phrase, labor to be affected by the cross. I love that. Labor to be affected by the cross. Don't ever speak of what Jesus did in a flippant or casual way. And if you are, get into his word. Read a book on the cross. There are plenty of great ones out there. The Bible being the preeminent. Just know that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. For you. And let that begin the process presenting your body to him again. Having your mind renewed. Discerning his will. We're not on our own. We don't make meaningless choices. We have a purpose. And it all begins with remembering Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins, risen from the dead. We've been shown extraordinary mercy by a God whose goodness surpasses our wildest imagining. No one will ever stand before God. Charles Spurgeon said this. No one will ever stand before God and say, God, I thought you were good but you, you're not as good as I expected. No one will say that. His goodness, His grace, His mercies are immeasurable. So it's only reasonable, it only makes sense that we would gather as a church and together be committed to presenting our lives as a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy pressing against the world so that we can see God's will enacted God's will displayed to more people who need to see God's mercy so that they can present their bodies as a living sacrifice have their minds renewed and test to see what the will of God is I want to end with a prayer from the Valley of Vision I think sums up some of the things we've been talking about. And then we'll, we'll close with a song. Thou God of all grace, I'll put this in modern language, you have given me a Savior. Produce in me a faith to live by Him, to make Him all my desire, all my hope, all my glory. May I enter Him as my refuge, build on him as my foundation, walk in him as my way, follow him as my guide, conform to him as my example, receive his instructions as my prophet, rely on his intercession as my high priest, obey him as my king. May I never be ashamed of him 
or his words, but joyfully bear his reproach. Never displease him by unholy or imprudent conduct. Never count it a glory if I take it patiently when buffeted for a fault. Never make the multitude my model. Never delay when your word invites me to advance. May your dear son preserve me from this present evil world so that its smiles never allure, nor its frowns terrify, nor its vices defile, nor its errors delude me. May I feel that I am a stranger and a pilgrim on earth, declaring plainly that I seek a country, my title to it daily becoming more clear, my meetness for it more perfect, my foretastes of it more abundant. And whatsoever I do, may it be done in the Savior's name.